0: Welcome to my podcast, which is all about changing your business and money reality. This is your master money coach, Dr. Gaurav Decca, and you are money. Hello, my friends. How have you all been? I'm having the most incredible week, to be very, very honest, because this Monday, we started off with our workshop called Money and Business Constellation. This is a five-day workshop where we have signed up 10 clients and we are doing money and business constellations with them. And all the people from ATEPs and TSM are witnessing these constellations, representing these constellations, taking part, and of course, learning a lot. There's been a lot of discussion going on in inside both TSM and ATEPs right at this moment. And I'm having a really, really busy time to be very, very honest. So now in the midst of all of this on Instagram and in my Facebook messenger, and even in our public Facebook public group, You Are Money, people have been asking me what exactly is a constellation. And I've been explaining them in different, different ways that it's one of the tools by which we can explore and heal uh, systemic traumas and ancestral wounds and intergenerational traumas. And then they're asking me about my training program uh, which is TSM and some people are confused between ATEPS and TSM as in what is ATEPS and what is TSM and I again had to explain to them that ATEPS happens to be a coaching program where I help coaches, healers, therapists, entrepreneurs to make a lot of money and TSM, the systemic medicine course, is actually a training program where I train people to become Trauma-focused coaches in the field of intergenerational trauma, right? And both of them are lifetime programs. So uh, then I decided that, okay, fine, you know, people really need to know what constellations are because that is something that I've devoted most of my life, like almost a decade has gone With me practicing trauma work. And um, as I always say, that coaching and trauma work are not very different for me because I invariably bring elements of trauma work into my coaching. So I want every one of you to know what constellations are. I also want you to know how I went into the field of constellations and how I discovered it and my personal story, my history with it. So I'm going to introduce you to a talk that I did last September in Manhattan College, New York. And it was all about my foray into Constellation work and a lot of, of course, my personal history. And I really, really hope you enjoy listening to this talk. Okay, thank you.
1: Hi, y'all. I'm Dr. Roxana Badrudoja. I'm the Chair of the Sociology Department at Manhattan College, and uh, together with uh, the Office of Student Engagement, the Department of Sociology has started a new lecture series, and this particular lecture series is focused on grief. Uh, for today's uh, today's talk and for the talks for the rest of the week, uh, in the context of grief, we are going to be exploring uh, suicide amongst young people, and we will be discussing um, how we can mourn uh, people that we love. And so today's guest speaker is Dr. Gaurav Decca, and uh, his talk is entitled "Non Acceptance of Fate." and its systemic repercussions. Uh, Before I introduce Dr. Decca, I want to give a huge shout out to the Office of Student Engagement. Michael Steele and John Bennett are on this call, so if you all could just like kind of say hi really quickly, that would be great. Uh, What I want to say about the Office of Student Engagement is that they have always supported my research for the past 10 years at Manhattan College and John has been a huge supporter and whenever I wanted to do something he was like absolutely yes so John could you just like say hi? Uh,
0: Thank you so much uh, Roxanne I really appreciate that Um, and honestly everything that you do for our community uh, we absolutely love it uh and we're excited to to have all the participants here so we really appreciate it and if i could also just add to something you said to start off as people are logging in it is the first morning after the holiday and it's been the weather has been a disaster here so so i feel um i feel bad about that but hopefully kind of people log in as this goes on so thank you again for everyone
1: yeah, absolutely. And Michael Michael actually did all the work to put all this together because I just brought the ideas and I'm like, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I want the series to be. And Michael's been doing all the legwork. Leg work. So Michael, could you say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm just happy to be here and, and happy to be part of this uh, great conversation. I hope everyone had uh, um, enjoys it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, so Dr. Goram Decca, he is an internationally, if you could all mute, please. Dr. Goram Decca is an internationally recognized speaker, coach, and expert on childhood and family trauma resolution. He follows a systemic approach with all his clients and resolves them by using mindfulness-based methodologies rooted in neuroscience, somatic awareness, and breathwork. He is also a pioneer in the field of family constellation and is the leading expert in inner child integration therapy in India. Because of his background as a medical doctor, Dr. Decca brings an integrative and neurophysiology neurophysiological modeled approach for the complete wellness and mental well-being of his clients. I want to say a personal word because that was like part of his official uh, bio. Dr. Decca is like one of my closest friends, and he is a freaking rock star. Like he completely changes the landscape of how we operate. Right. Um, so when we experience grief, we develop, we start developing patterns of being, and we use those patterns of being to operate in the world. And Dr. Decca works to intervene in those patterns so that we can um, transmute those patterns into more productive patterns to show up in the world, like more fully and integrated in the lives that we have. Um, it, look, it doesn't mean we, we're not gonna experience grief. It doesn't mean we're not gonna experience lost people in our lives. They are going to pass away, and so the idea is not to it's not to not experience grief, but how we can sit in that grief with with fidelity and honor and dignity. So that's what I'm hoping to do with this. So I am going to uh, turn this over uh, to Dr. Decca, and uh, you all will see his amazingness.
0: Thank you, thank you, Roxana. Um, That was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much. Um, Before I begin, I have sent you the link that uh, Gargi, one of our friends, she went into my account and generated uh, this new link and I've sent it to you, okay? So you may just wanna have a look and see if you would want to post this uh, in the chat box for everyone.
1: I'll take a look at it, you go do your thing and I'm gonna to try to work yeah. on this right now.
0: Okay okay so you you can post it directly in the chat box okay yeah. so I'll I'll just go ahead. okay uh, I do want to uh, one second yeah I'll just in my video, I think it's already on record. So I'll go ahead with that. So as uh, Roxana um, pointed out that my, my, my talk is called Non-Acceptance of Fate and its Systemic Repercussions. And even though the title feels and looks uh, complicated, um, I'm going to give you a simple story. Not a simple story, maybe a couple of stories, and I want to start with my own story. So the so I first came to know that you know I was the um, second child of my parents, and that there is a. Yeah, we need to. Could, could I?
1: Could I please have everyone? Everyone mute. So. Um, Abilasha, Abi could you please mute?
0: You can actually look and look look at the panel and, and mute the mics yourself, Roxana.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, got it. More, got, it. Yeah. got it, got it. I did it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, let me dig in. So I first came to know that I was the second child of my parents um, and that to the living one and that there is a brother before me and there is that there is one after me, you know, who who didn't live, who didn't survive. I came to know about that whole story in a strange uh, therapeutic setting. At least it was strange for me when I first attended it. And uh, while I'm not going into the details of the whole process, I just want to briefly tell uh, tell you a little about that work, which later became my work, something that I work with. And my work is with systems. So what is a system? A system is anything that has parts to it, right? There are components to it and all components come together to create a whole. And in in the simplest of vocabulary, the whole, um, which is the system, is always uh, in some way, has more power, has more voice and more effect than the parts that actually make it, the parts that make the whole. Initially, it was very difficult for me to understand this whole concept, to to absorb this. But how I got into it was via my own experience. So I went in as a client um, to work with someone who happened to be um, a systemic therapist to repair and heal the kind of sadness I felt as a child, which was inexplicable. And it was not the kind of sadness that um, you can give a reason to. It was that kind of sadness that I actually um, can't explain in words. I mean, when I look into my whole family, Um, I realized that my grandmother was uh, long dead and my paternal grandparents had died before even I was born. So everyone else in my family um, were still alive. So what would happen to me is I would come back after school and then I would go back to mom. And... I would cling to her, I would cling to her maxi and smell her moisturizer and her hand cream. And there was a special particular hand cream called, uh, called Boroplus and I would like smell it. And I would actually ask my mother if uh, my father is going to be late, if Papa is going to be late. And I would have these stories in my head Even as a young boy, when as a child, I would have the stories in my head. That what if there is a bomb blast in in Guwahati? Guwahati is the city I uh, grew up in, you know, which is it's a small city in the northeast of India, it's in a state called Assam. Because everyone would talk about bomb blasts. Because there was the Alpha U L F A, United Liberation Front of Assam. Who were at that point a separatist organization. And they were trying to establish an independent sovereign nation state of Assam, the state I grew up in, uh, for the indigenous people, Assamese people. And that was being done through an armed struggle. That is what led to the whole conflict, you know, all of these uh, blasts happening across the town and city. And we would get to hear about these you know you would, I would learn of stories where several people civilians would be would be would be killed. Um, I have had friends whose mom and dad went grocery shopping or to uh, buy vegetables across the road under the flyover and never returned and they could see from their windows you know the walls of the shops breaking and black clouds blooming and mushrooming out of nowhere and people's parts strewn and scattered. And it was very strange for me because I uh, would wonder all of these things happening to my father you know, in my stories. And this continued to my adolescence. The images of those fears changed You know, as I grew up, as I grew up into an adult, the images of those fears kept changing. And they were no longer restricted to the images of my father dying or my mother disappearing and abandoning me, but an insidious form of grief about myself that this life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. And I would have these sentences running in my head wherein I, I would have these voices which would tell me that I do not deserve to live that nothing really good is going to come out of it, that one day I will lose everything and all I have to do is wait till that day so it's not worth living. Well, in hindsight, because I worked worked as a therapist and someone who regularly helps people examine their thoughts and the source of their emotions, today I know what I really felt. I felt I had already lost something so close to me, something so intimate that it was for me to live a half-life, a a compromised one, one where you just wait to die, then a life that would be full, that would be rich, that would be blooming, that would allow me to embrace the life force and the joy that my parents brought me to, uh, to this world with and the reason for this unknown um, desire for a half life i would say backed by a fear of a full one became clear during a process called uh, family constellation it's a therapeutic process where a therapist or you can call a facilitator through what seems like seems like a mystical um, experience is it, it's it's basically An inexplicable, unexplainable positioning of different people representing different family members of the client brings to light certain hidden stories, hidden experiences and unprocessed traumas from the family, from the system of the client. Often these hidden stories and traumas are not available to the client. They don't know about it because it's not in their conscious experience. It's not a part of their cognitive memory or understanding. These stories and these experiences are beyond what the client can recollect or consciously regress back to. They are present somewhere in the system and we may not be aware of everything that is there inside the system. To give you an example, you may not know what happened five years back in the house you just moved in. You don't know who was fired and under what circumstances and who was ill-treated at the new job you have just joined. You don't know how many bomb blasts may have happened and how many people may have lost their lives in a city. You know, you walk into my city, Guwahati, and it's so neatly organized with so many new towers and malls coming up and you wouldn't know, you know that there are corpses and you know, dead human underneath it. You don't know who were the people who lost their children, lost money or property, sank into grief, took their life. In your own family, you won't know because they may have happened many, many generations back. So for me, There were things in my system that I did not know. And strange as it may sound to you or seem to you, I was not exempted from feeling the grief that came with the presence of these things. albeit, of course, their absence, right? Because they were not visible. So I discovered my mother had lost a child before me and it was a boy and um, the womb where I found my life and I grew up, it was already home to someone who had lost his life inside it. And when I was two and didn't have a fully functional prefrontal cortex the part of the brain that is responsible for understanding and being present and knowing the reality and knowing the facts. you know. At that time, of course, I don't have conscious recollection. She went through a painful miscarriage at that point. The fetus was almost five months and he didn't survive. He would have been the third in the family. We would have been um, three brothers by now. And although as long as nostalgia guides me and I go back to spending days in school worrying in abstruse paranoia that my mother would disappear. Somehow she would abandon me. She would go away. And then I would think of my father's death. And as I said it later, transformed into sentences like, I do not deserve to live. It's useless and I must kill myself. I realized that you know we all take it on us beyond our conscious willingness to preserve what has not been grieved, what has not been witnessed and said that this is what happened and I'm willing to feel it now. And we don't do that. Families don't do that. Organizations don't do that. Schools don't do that. Systems don't do that. You know, when you go to a party and someone asks you, you know, how many children do you have? You know, and people say, Oh, I have a boy, and then you know, I have a girl. And you don't say things like, We have four. The first one was a miscarriage, and the last one died young on the eighth day. You don't say that. Because at least in India, you know how men react to such incidences. They literally and metaphorically turn away and they don't talk about it. Expecting men to talk in India is like expecting a log of wood to have a voice, actually. So <laughs> some of them go, Sometimes they have affairs. Most of them do not recognize it as a valid feeling um, because most of us probably do not identify grief as grief. We don't have the language to identify it. Women, on the other hand, you know, the sink into uh, a black hole. Not, not know how to react or how to respond. Right. There is no other support system except for other women in the family. You know, the, at the at, at the in-laws and if she has sisters, like my mother did, you know she had sisters. And then they internalize it. The compensation as well as the consolation often is the next pregnancy, that's how it's dealt with. However, as I said, the whole is greater than its parts and has more power than its parts combined. And therefore the effect of these losses remain they are not grieved, they aren't processed. And many of you may have questions like, but how do you do that? How do you process? And I say you process when you allow yourself to feel what you don't want to. We don't sit down on a Monday morning with our windows open, you know, deciding not to have a cup of coffee or tea and feeling the pain and consciously deciding not to buffer by doing something by eating something, by talking to someone, checking our emails and just sit down and ask, what if I allowed myself to feel this grief? Where in my body would I be feeling it? Because I dread to feel what I think I would feel. I dread imagining how it would like to be to feel all those painful feelings, how it would be to give that feeling a name every single day and write the name down on a piece of paper, anger, fury, desolation, empty, numb, hostile, whatever you call it, and then let it stay there for as long. Because you know what feelings are, they're vibrations, they're sensations, they're waves that can be physically felt inside our bodies, sometimes in localized parts and they rise like a wave and they have a crest, a summit, and then they begin to fall. And grief is one such movement which often feels unending. It's an unending, feels like an unending wave because often it may lack a crest, it may lack a summit, a peak. It may be a combination of a lot of different emotions like anger and sadness and fear, hopelessness and desperation. And hence, it has this ability, this strange ability, like a soul of its own, a will, a will to stay and continue inside the system. It continues. And what happened to me that I discovered through the process of constellation work, that I was in a way the carrier of that grief. The half-life I experienced, the desire to take my own life and belong elsewhere and not in the world of living was a genuine feeling by living a semi-alive almost dead life by finding opportunities to take my life i could belong better and closer to my brothers and the pull was strong it existed like a strong force field in the system and i could feel its effect, not grieving or making that conscious movement of feeling those painful feelings when you are a part of a system, a system could be a family, an organization, a school, a university, a hospital, when we don't, you know, not grieving or making that conscious movement of feeling those painful feelings when we are a part of such a system, is actually not taking the things the way they are and the way they were. And I have had clients in the past who were in the most beautiful relationship and found themselves absolutely unable to initiate intimacy, despite being in love. And many of them have had siblings who died young. Some had childhood sweethearts who lost their lives. Some had parents who took their lives. Some came from countries where there were wars and their kinsmen and relatives who had lost land and property and children. Like I would have so many people who have had their parents or their grandparents back in Pakistan and may have lost everything during the partition while coming back to India. Some of them have had previous marriages and partnerships where their children did not survive and some were aborted. And despite being in love and choosing each other out out of their own will, out of their own volition, the emptiness they felt were unexplainable. It felt as if an external force had caused them to feel these feelings. Some of them would end in divorce, and they would still not know why, and they would call it falling out of love, which often is the residual energy of someone else's fate, someone else's experience. And that has gone, that fate has gone unrecognized and unprocessed in what remains in the current. And then there were clients who were diagnosed clinically depressed, like I was and some with unexplainable anxiety. You know, One I particularly remember was a doctor. She was a surgeon and had extreme angst against her parents. And even when there were no reasons for which she couldn't point out in therapy how they may have treated her unjustly, she still continued to feel angry even though she had no visible, tangible reasons that she could state. And she didn't have the energy to drag herself out of her bed and go to the washroom. She didn't see a reason why she should live. She was 32 and unmarried and had already attempted suicide once by ingesting sedatives. And at one point, I had to stop working with her directly because I was sensing that she may not have the solution within the ambit of her knowledge. Um, She didn't have the data. That she was presenting and the solution was not within that data and i had to speak to her mom and it was there that i came to know that both her parents my client's mother's parents had died while she was very young the father took his life following a financial loss and the mother sank into an endless spit and ended her life the woman my client's mother could never think of it or you know go back to it and look at it and in a way exiled her emotions from the whole experience so what the mother couldn't feel or refuse to feel the daughter did on her behalf including the anger that is completely unfelt even denied by the mother no i'm not angry with my parents that's what the mother says they they did what they did They didn't have the provision to think about me. It was too much for my father and my mother lost hope and courage. If I'm angry, that'll be unreasonable. I'll end up blaming them. That's not what I want to do. And that's how often we unfeel, we unfeel what we feel and what we would have felt without without those walls of intellectualization. If we don't intellectualize, we will at least feel. And hence, the daughter was feeling all of it, who walked in as the client. And just like I was feeling what perhaps my parents couldn't feel, like one story leads to the other, there were other stories that emerged in my system for me. So while the fate of my brothers became my Raizendetwa, there were other forces that had percolated down to our collective fate. The three boys each gifted with a, you can say each gifted with a blanket of grief. You now my mother's father, meaning my maternal grandfather had lost his father as a young boy and he'd lost his life at 32. And from what I know, he was killed. My grandfather was six at the time. And if you notice, it was the same age, similar age, at which I started thinking and feeling that I will be abandoned by my mother. My father is going to die. There is going to be bomb blast. So you can now see the connection that I was feeling things that other people have felt before me without my knowledge. It was my grandfather who had lost his father at the age of six, right? So my great-grandmother, my grandfather's mom. She one day went to the forest behind our ancestral house and hung herself. And my grandfather was a self-made man. He grew up fast and took up every possible work and business. And it is beyond any context, any kind of context for a man like him to sit down and feel those feelings. There's no time. Right? Like it is beyond reason and context for let's say an organization or an office to mourn the loss of someone who died or someone who took their life. I mean, beyond the point, we don't feel like continuing, we can't because there are other affairs to be taken care of, other affairs in the family to be taken care of. That's how we have been, that's how we operate. But does that mean that those who come later inside the family or in the system, they are also exempted from feeling that they do not feel a secret force pulling them back into the void. Not in my life or in the lives of the clients that I have seen. Contrary to our strong belief in an individualistic society and in the the idea of independent existence, that one has to work for themselves and live for themselves, have personal objectives, and that the winner always stands alone. And if you don't fight for yourself, no one will. It's a dog-eat-dog dog world. You know, I want to propose a different idea. I want to propose a different truth. And the truth is we are all lovers. And we love without knowing. And love, love doesn't seek the permission of your knowledge to exist. Peter Wolben, who happens to be a German forest scientist, writes in his book, His book is called The Hidden Life of Trees. And it talks about how a forest is a super organism and it will ensure that the tree that is diseased and ill is dying, it survives. It'll ensure it survives. The other healthy trees are all around. They pump nutrients and hydrate the one that is ill. And they make sure that it lives. Because if that tree dies, there goes something missing in the whole system. And you can, you can say that the super organism has lost a limb. Everyone has to come together in the process of balancing what is lost. So how does one balance the loss of one's own limb? When we lose someone, we think we don't know. We think, oh, they are far away from us. You know, they. We think they are not connected to our fate, our objectives, our aspirations. We don't think like the forest. We feel it doesn't cast any effect on us. And to be truthful at a conscious level, it doesn't. At a conscious level, it doesn't. But as I said, ra- love does not rely on your intention or your deliberation or your will. It just is, it exists like, like fate love doesn't seek permission love doesn't seek permission faith doesn't seek permission and the glue that binds all of us to one system is love as shallow as it may sound as cliche as it may be right it is love that brings forth the balancing act and when i realized for the first time that we were three brothers there was one before me one after me and I am the second one, I looked at my father's family. And this was much before I came to know of the tragedies of my mother's families, my grandfather's stories. I looked into my father's story and everyone in my father's family are three brothers, including my father. And then I looked back and could figure out how traumatic events in one system can trigger an old wound in another member of that system. My father is the third and his second brother, because in my system, I am the second. I have someone after me who is no more. So his second brother aligned with me. I am the second, he's the second. He had taken his his life in a very similar way like my maternal, grandfather's mom. And so it coincides because just a year later, I was diagnosed with depression. And and just a year later, I tried to take my life. So what I want to point out is that the traumas that happen around us and our lives inside this whole system inside our families, our workplaces, our countries, our nations, they are not separate. We are truly creatures of love and it is love that keeps this connection alive. That makes us balance whatever goes missing. We, we, in a way, follow them. And that happens because love is blind. Another cliche, but that's true. Love only wants to ensure one single thing. It wants to ensure one single thing. And that single thing is inclusion. It seeks to complete. It seeks to bring us together. It seeks to include. And I'm not saying that it's our fault that we withdraw. We forget and we keep it aside. And sometimes we lock up that grief in a box and throw it in the ocean because that's how we have been culturally designed to think. That's what people tell us, oh, forget about it. It doesn't concern you. It's not your story. It's none of your business. And to an extent, it's true, isn't it? What other people experience, the pain they go through, the way they choose to live their life and, and or end those lives is not our business. But our business is to recognize that they aren't separate from us our business is to know that when a loss happens someone takes their life or ends midway or is unable to walk into the great rich abundant full life as we do it is important for us to bring into our conscious awareness the love that binds us to them When we mourn and when we grieve, we don't just sit back and have 10 minutes of silence, blocked noses, you know, eyes filled with tears, but asking ourselves important question. And one of them is how do I honor the fate of this person? Like I asked myself, how do I honor the fate of my brothers? How do I honor the fate of my uncle? Who took his life, my father's second brother. How do I honor my grandfather whose deep sadness I carry from the age of six? Like my 32-year-old doctor client, she would ask, how do I honor the fate of my grandparents and that of my mother whose pain I carry? Like those that couldn't stay in the relationship despite being in love, How do I honor the lives of those who lost their husbands, wives, their homes, their children back in Pakistan? Like to so many people from Guwahati, my city, who lost their friends and the parents of their parents during the bomb blast, you know, during the alpha movement. How do I honor the fate of those people? And while I continue to live, because I'm living today, and there is no fixed process, no set method, or no true therapeutic standardized intervention to do so, you know, to, to grieve and to acknowledge their fate. It is rather a non-intellectual internal movement, and it happens like love without a conscious will. However, just like love, when we make it conscious, What emerges to the surface is a feeling of they being present. What emerges to the surface is they being included. Like wherever I go, for example, I'm speaking right now here and in my inner image, I have both my brothers standing side by side and they are included. The world I see right now, the world I communicate to as I talk to you, they see through me, they talk through me. And that is how I include them. This is how they are present in me. And even in a therapeutic setup, we ask the couple who has lost a child to include them in their world. To those who have lost ancestors, to horrible events, we ask them to include them. The grieving is really and truly complete when we stop complaining why they left. Why did this happen? Why did they have to do that? And instead, we begin to look at what happened as fate. And make a movement towards honoring them. And honoring, by the way, is impossible without engagement, without acknowledging that the family you belong to, the institution you study and practice, the organization where you meet several ones like you, yourself, by recognizing that it's a system. You are not an island. You are in the effect of every other around you who exists, whether you want it or not. That's how human life and human connections are. We do not live on an island. There aren't individual lives and individual aspirations. We are inside a system and there are systems within systems. And the way we can grow and live towards our fullness when we are, is when we are able to include and honor everyone else in the system. Even the ones who came before us, people who lived before us, friends who came before us, colleagues who joined before us, even the ones who are invisible today, and even the ones we know nothing about and before you ask me how 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 is that I want to remind you that it is not an intellectual exercise and love isn't but it is possible by our power to acknowledge that we aren't alone and the collective exists beyond our conscious awareness. And we only honor it when we bow down to its presence, when we accept that it is present. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Decca. That was completely amazing, and um, actually, amazing doesn't cut it. It deeply, it deeply resonates the ways in which. Um, we experience grief and we often don't know what, like why we're experiencing this grief. Right. And you've, you've created, you've created a systemic uh, context to it. Um, I have some questions and some statements to make, but I first, since we only have like a little less than 15 minutes, if there's yeah. anyone who would like to ask, uh, questions, uh, please just go ahead and unmute yourself and, uh, Please ask Dr. Decker, and then I'll I'll wrap it up with some comments. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to offer? Maybe actually, what you could first do is just let me know in the chat that you'd like to like to ask a question. That would be great. Okay. I guess I I guess. I will go. Um, I first have a couple of comments to make. Um, as you were speaking, I was just really reminded of my own personal experiences with grief. Oh, actually, I'll have I'll have Pradeep go and then I'll and then I'll continue. Pradeep, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear yes. you. Yes. What's your question? Yeah, hi, Dr. How are you? I'm good.
0: I'm good. Thank you.
1: Yeah, my guardies, uh how do we stop a small child uh, from following the way of you know sex success maybe on the grief yeah. line or uh, that thing how to stop the yeah. small kid three or five yeah. years old well.
0: so thank you the answer is very simple um we don't work directly with children because children are representatives of the family and children are the biggest flag bearers of blind love. So their love knows no logic, which of course we can see, therefore they are willing to carry everything um, for their parents, not just children. I, have, I, I refuse to work with people uh, below 25 because I know that they are carrying things for their, for their parents, which uh, probably their parents have not processed or haven't had the agency, haven't had the way to process. So I work with the parents and we see what is the child trying to carry for the parent. And because the child, as I said, is the biggest representative of the system. So it just moves ahead in line, carrying everything.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know what I was what, what what I was going to say about you know this blind love you know of the child, um, you know very similar to you. Like growing up, like I've always had like this deep, deep heartache, deep what felt like deep uh, irreparable grief. And you know, similar to some of the stories that you tell. I mean, when I was a teenager, I did I did try to end my life, and I was just there was just so much grief. And, um, you know, you already know, I'm, I'm almost 50. And I didn't find out until like my early 40s um, that I was a twin. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, my mom articulates, you know, my mom articulates, oh, well, there's two sisters, but in fact, there are three children missing in my system. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I was what I would call like a a war-torn womb. I was, I was residing in a war-torn womb because my sister had passed away right mm-hmm. so this this grief is you know what i what i was carrying and you're right we don't say we don't and when people ask how many children that we have we don't say you know we don't count the ones that are not here i mean i mm-hmm. i started i think a couple of years ago telling people i have four children with one live birth right yeah. but but my 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 daughter who's alive and whom i raised she has three other siblings and they need Absolutely. to be included. And that's part of the way I practice, you know, I practice my grief. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The question that I have for you is, what do you think, as you know, we have we have lost young people on our campus. And Absolutely. just recently we've had a young man take, take, his, take his own life. This idea of honoring grief, which is by the way y'all, what my talk is gonna be about on Friday, how to honor grief. For you, Dr. Dekka, I have to ask, what do you think should be an institutional response, right? For universities and colleges. What do you think is the response to our students who pass away by taking their own lives? Uh, I would like to cover three points here. The first point is
0: when someone takes their life, we have to go by this knowing that they are Um, entangled with a force which does not come from their will. Their personal will. That force with which they're entangled with is a loss, tragedy in their own family. Like how I talked about my father's brother who had taken his life and just one year later, triggered something in my system there were wounds already present from my mother's side as well as my brother's non-survival but it was triggered by an event because someone took their life so what I want to say is why can we not judge that movement why can we not judge someone taking their life why can we not say things like they how could they do this you know Mm -hmm. that's not good thing to do or you know it was irresponsible is because it is beyond their conscious will to be enmeshed and entangled with a force that is way stronger than their personal will to live Mm
1: -hmm. and this
0: force exists somewhere in the system beyond them beyond their data before them, most probably in another generation. So we have to understand that whatever they have done, they it, it is an entanglement. That's 100%. the first thing to acknowledge that.
1: 100%. The second
0: thing is as an institution, it is so important to include, and by inclusion, I mean to give this person A voice to be able to talk about them Mm -hmm. to be able to tell their stories without inducing or reflecting fear or anxiety or desperation to be able to uh, communicate without the feeling of anxiety that this is who this person is and was
1: Mm
0: And they will continue to be part of this institution. And they are as honorable as anyone else who studies in this institution.
1: Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. To be
0: able to give their life and story of voice is what inclusion is. Yeah. And the third reason why we must do that is third point that I want to mention is An institution is a system. Yeah. Like I gave the example of the forest as a super organism and when one tree dies, then there are other trees who are affected and the effect is beyond the tree's ability to think that the tree cannot think. You know, it has a rudimentary nervous system. So I wanna bring the same example here that the same effect continues to remain and stay in the system. Other people in their lives other forms are going to experience either anxiety or grief or uh, desperation or some kind of emotional conflict if the one who, who, who's gone, the one who has taken their life, is not given a voice.
1: Right. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Parts of a
0: system repeat feelings of the ones lost in a
1: system. Right. Right. Um, Supriya, I, I do see your hand up. I just want to continue this a little bit further. So, you know, our students um, in their grief uh, de- demanded some time, you know, some time to think about what had happened on our campus last semester. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, our institutional response was, yeah, something really horrible happened, but but we need to continue, and so students were petitioning to have some time off from their classes, um, and that didn't happen. And so again, like I ask you, what in this, like in this petition that students had, what should have been an appropriate institutional response to the students who are grieving the loss of their of their friend? To give them
0: time, yeah, to give them time, to give them time to process. We yeah. cannot process when we do not have space inside our bodies and our nervous systems.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you feel feelings when your nervous system is constantly triggered with fear and anxiety and desperation and hopelessness? Yeah. The real feelings are not those. Those are cover-up emotions. The real feelings are emotions of loss.
1: Yeah. No, I think this is
0: loss in space.
1: Yeah, some of us, you know, some faculty members, we we did like suspend classes and we held open office hours to be able to just hold space for our students. But at large, you know, I think I think institutions in general need to do a better job, much better job. So Supriya, you have a question? Yeah. Hi. Uh,
0: you know, Gaurav, I have this question that, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, identification with our ancestors and, you know, how, like, you talked about how you connected with your uncle who was, like, at the same number as you were born. But, like, is it possible for a person to identify with more number of people irrespective of, you know, the sequence of their birth? And also, you know, we are largely talking about, yes, the grief of the people who we have lost. A lot of times you identify people who are still there but you know their griefs their loss their losses may not be really talked about within the family yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: but somewhere you feel like the same same kind of energy that they have felt so you know how you work around that yeah, yeah. um yeah so the first the first the answer to the first question that is it possible to have um connections uh, in our language we call them entanglements uh, to simplify it, can, can we have connections to more than one people, more than one person? And the answer is yes, that we may we may have connections and connections to their traumatic experiences. Yes, it is possible through different different ways by which we uh, identify with them. Uh, that's one. The other is trauma is not only feelings of anger, angst, shutting down, freezing, numbing out, and all these active shock feelings. The trauma are also the feelings that we wanted to feel during the time when the trauma was happening to us, and we couldn't feel that. Like, my body shuts down. Instead, my body wanted to have space. I wanted to cry. I wanted to howl. I wanted to scream. I wanted to uh, say things in ants and, you know, be as vitriolic as I can be in that moment, but I can't because everything is this whole force coming from outside and turning us into you know, a capsule, a pebble where everything is locked. And this can be the response of our parents, of our uh, uncle, of, you know, our siblings. And as I said that they did not feel because it was forced from outside to inside, the feelings that they could have felt or wanted to feel. So now we feel on their behalf. This is why the reason we have so many, Um, I'm digressing, but I just wanted to say this. this is the reason why we have so many ADHD uh, cases, so many children having attention-deficient hyperactive disorder, because parents have somehow not had the agency, the willingness, or a way to process their anger and angst or frustration, so the child feels on their behalf.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Dr. Decca. It is, uh, it's past uh, noon. Uh, I do have a class to teach. Uh, yeah. So no, we're, we, we will officially end. I'm going to stop the recording. But Dr. Dekka, if you just want to, I'll, I'll hang out for like another five minutes. Uh, if Dr. Right. Dekka, would you be willing to hang out for another five minutes?
0: Yeah, another five minutes is fine with me. And then I can take leave. Yeah,
1: yeah and same here because I have to rush to class. So Absolutely. all right, I'm going to stop the recording.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and are willing to change your business and money reality, head to my free coaching community on Facebook called You Are Money. Link is in the show notes. And do not forget to leave a review on Spotify.com or Apple Podcast. Thank you so much.